As we turn back to the passage that was just read a moment ago, I want you to think about the person that you think would be least likely to trust in God. And when you think of that person, think about what the reaction of other people might be if you told them that now this person is, is genuinely following God and, and trusting in Him and you're going to go start spending a lot of time with this person, what do you think their reaction might be? Hopefully. But, think of, for example, uh, Jonah in the Old Testament. Why didn't Jonah want to go and give God's message to the city of Nineveh? Because quite frankly, he hated them because of what they had done to his people. And if someone came to Jonah and said, Hey Jonah, now all of these people that have oppressed and murdered some of your people and all the nations around you, uh, now they've started to follow God and now you're going to spend time with them or these other people that you know, they're going to go spend time with them. We start to get a feeling for what some of the the repulsion, the disgust, the uncertainty that would come in people's hearts and minds looking in from looking out from outside in at that situation. We don't have any really good parallels to what we see here in Acts chapter 11 because we have not grown up with a perspective of being God's chosen people in precisely the same way that the Israelites understood rightfully themselves to be. Are there causes for division in our society today? Are there separations between different groups of people? Yes, but they tend not to be about religious differences or a sense that we are called by God like was true for the Israelites. They tend to be more about other things. Uh, economic status or ethnic background or some of those sorts of things. And some of that plays in to what we see in this passage, but it's not precisely the same circumstance that we see here in Acts chapter 11. But what is the occasion? Verse 1, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so I think that there's been a little bit of time that's elapsed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. There would have been enough time for news to spread, for the people to become aware of what had gone on with Peter going and, and seeing Cornelius. There was time for rumors to spring up about what precisely had happened, but the general understanding of what had taken place was the Gentiles had received the word of God. The Gentiles? We Jews haven't worshipped idols since we were carried away in captivity and came back to the land, but the Gentiles, they still worship idols every day. They commit unspeakable acts of cruelty and hatred and immorality and all of these sorts of things, and the gospel God has gone to them? Why do I say that that's the attitude that they had? Verse 2, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
And it's interesting that in this passage we have pretty much a retelling of what takes place in Acts chapter 10, but it's not from the perspective of, is the gospel going to go to the Gentiles? It has to do with the attitude of those who were the Jews toward this work that God had done. What was their attitude toward it going to be? What was their reception of it going to be like? And at least at the outset, the answer is hostility. Peter comes back. They basically say, what were you thinking? Why would you go to these people? To a certain degree, it's the same sort of attitude that we see in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes and talks to the Samaritan woman and she says, why would you be a Jew associate with me except it, it, was, it was even worse than that. At least they had the, uh, the Samaritans had the claim of having some connection with the Jewish people, but, but the Gentiles, they were completely outside of Israel. What hope was there for them? And Peter goes and associates himself with those sorts of people, whether or not the rumors are true. Peter, why would you do that sort of a thing? Notice the words that are used. Circumcised, uncircumcised, eight. Those are the same sorts of ideas that we saw back in chapter 10. What was the significance of these things? The significance of these things was not in the in the act itself, but in what it symbolized. You who are in with God's people went to those who are out of being part of God's people and you ate with them. Do you see the connection there? You're part of God's people. They're not. And eating is something that bridges that gap. You're doing that with them. You're associating with them. How could you do such a thing? They're really saying, to a certain extent, are you sure this is actually what God wanted you to do? Why do I say that? Because of Peter's answer, verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence. It's interesting that he says, I began to explain to them in orderly sequence, or that Luke phrases it in that way, because isn't that what he said he was doing for Theophilus? Laying out the truth in orderly sequence. And even as we were beginning to look at this passage in these last few moments, do you see the development of what's taking place in this passage? The gospel is going from God's chosen people to those who have made themselves impure by mingling with the nations to the nations apart from God's people. The gospel is coming to first people like uh, the apostles and Stephen and the ones that you would sort of expect to receive it. And then it's going to people like Paul. Why Paul? First called Saul in the first part of this book. And now it's coming to the Gentiles. And so we sort of see this building to this point. And certainly the tensions that, the, that are brought about at this point are not going to be fully resolved, which is why we have the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. But at least by the end of this section, we have a tentative acceptance of God's work that he laid out that he was going to do in Acts 1.8, that the gospel was going to go not only to the Jews, but to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. And the disciples in Jerusalem knew that that would be the case because that's what God had said 
to the apostles and to those who are gathered there, and yet there's a sense in which God having said it as one thing and seeing it worked out in front of them was something else. So what does Peter say? I was in the city of Joppa praying. So he starts out by saying, I'm doing something that, that none of you, I think, would take exception with. I was praying. It was a good, Jewish, appropriate, God-pleasing thing to do. I was praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. So, was your going to the Gentiles, Peter, was it from God? Peter says, I was doing the things that I was supposed to be doing. I was praying to God. God gives me this vision, but what was the vision like? We saw it last week. In this thing like a sheet were four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, crawling creatures, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, but nothing holy or unclean, unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. What is the significance of this in light of what they've just said? You went and ate with them. And Peter says, yes, because God said, don't call it unholy or unclean if I have said that it's acceptable. We see that in verse 9. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And so Peter is creating this chain between his vision and the idea of eating and the idea of being defiled by eating and his associating with the Gentiles and connecting it back to God's work and to God's calling to Peter. And it's interesting to see how this passage uh, proceeds. Look at verse 1. The apostles and the brethren who are throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Verse 18. They said, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Receive the word of God is parallel with repentance that leads to life. They, the accusation. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with him. They took exception to Peter. Beginning of verse 18, they quieted down and glorified God. Again, you see the, the opposition and then the response to it at the end of the passage. We see in verses 4 through 10, Peter's vision. We're going to see in verses 13 and 14, Cornelius' vision. And right in the middle of this passage, we see what? Verses 11 and 12. At that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. So what's Peter's answer to you went to uncircumcised men and ate, ate with them? God told me to, and I wasn't the only one that did this. Because we might read through this passage, and we, went, we might look at it, and we might say, well, Peter just sort of did this on his own, and there was no one watching him, and he, he went off by himself, but that's not what it says. Remember what it said in Acts chapter 10? Verse 23, on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Some of them appear to have now been at Jerusalem with Peter, because it says, these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. So what are Peter's two responses? First of all, 
God told me in a vision to go with them. Second of all, I wasn't the only one. These also were witnesses both of the going and of what God did later. And so the structure of the passage, I think, points to verses 11 and 12 in the parallels and in the contrast because it brings it to this point, which is the question that I think Luke is answering for the readers of his book. Was the gospel coming to the Gentiles? Was it something that was either A, of human initiative, or B, one man's idea going off on his own? Verses 11 and 12 indicate that the answer to both of those is no. Was it from God? Yes, God clearly in a vision said to go and do it. And we should certainly expect this because Acts 1.8 said he was going to do it. And because even going back to the Old Testament, there are examples and prophecies and indications that God wasn't just concerned about his people Israel, although he was very concerned about his people Israel. Think, for example, of who was in the line of Christ. Three of the four women named in the line of Christ are clearly Gentiles in Matthew chapter 1. And I know we get stuck on genealogies and they're not always the most exciting thing to read, but I think that that's significant. And that, among a whole bunch of other things, should have potentially pointed the Jews to a recognition, even the promise of Abraham in Genesis 12. You'll be a blessing to all the nations. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God's work was through His people Israel. But it wasn't only for His people Israel. Paul makes this point in Romans 9-11. to Has God forgotten about the Israelites? No, but He has temporarily set them aside because of their unbelief so that the Gentiles might be brought in and made part of the church so that their being part of the church would provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would see God's work and in it all people would be saved, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but both bringing God more glory because all of them together are coming to God. And we see the, the amazing way in which God has worked. So was it part of God's plan? Verse 12 says, The Spirit told me to go with them. Not just to go with them. Not like begrudgingly. Think about Balaam in the Old Testament. Did he go? He went after he was told a whole bunch of times. And when he went back and forth, God, should I go? Should I not go? Uh, if I go, what should it look like? He doesn't want to go. Jonah that I already mentioned, he didn't want to go certainly where God wanted him to go. Many other times in the Bible we see people being hesitant. Moses. What did Moses say? I'm not good at public speaking. I can't go lead the people out of, out of Egypt. But what does Peter do? The Spirit told me to go to them without misgivings. And what did he do? On the next day he got up and went. So not only did God say to do it, but Peter did it immediately. And not only did Peter recognize that it was God's work based on this vision, based on this expression that God had said to him, but specifically, Peter was accompanied by other Jews who were seemingly also in good standing with God, who were served as an example and a testimony to the fact that this wasn't just Peter getting a weird idea in his head and going off on his own. 
This was Peter doing what God wanted him to do, and other Jews accompanied him, perhaps simply out of curiosity, but they were able to serve as witnesses of what God did among the Gentiles. And how many witnesses would they have needed to agree that something was true? Two or three, right? You couldn't bring an accusation against somebody on the basis of one witness. In this case, it's not just two or three. There's Peter and six brethren. So it's pretty clear that there are enough people to say, this was a true thing, this took place, this was God's work. So Luke has answered for us the question of, is this God's work? Yes. Was Peter the only one who saw it? No. There were a whole bunch of them that went and saw it. And then now we have Cornelius' vision. So in case there was a question about, well, maybe Peter, maybe your vision, you got misled by it. Now Peter's going to point out the fact that he wasn't the only one that got a vision. As a further sign of God's work among the Gentiles, God sent a vision to this Gentile that was the reason for them coming to get Peter. And he, that is uh, Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That's an interesting development based on what we've seen of this story so far, because we see Cornelius' vision uh, several times. In verse chapter 10 and verse 5, it just says, Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. And then in chapter 10 and verse 32, Therefore send to Joppa, and... Uh, invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. Verse 33, we are here present before God to hear all the words that you've been commanded by the Lord. And then now in chapter 11, Peter summarizes it, I think, both in terms of his understanding of what God said and knowing better what God had actually said, which is, He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. It is significant that the angel appeared to a Gentile. Is this the only example of this happening in the Bible that we know of? No, there's other examples. For example, when Abraham drives out Hagar, the angel appears to her and speaks to her words of comfort and encouragement. And there's other examples as well, certainly. And yet, for a people who anticipated that they were the ones primarily to whom God spoke and primarily among whom God was ministering, it is interesting that Peter points out the fact that Cornelius also had a vision. This was God's work among the Gentiles. And God's work among the Gentiles was not certainly for them to say, okay, everything you're doing is okay, carry on as you are. What was Peter's message? We looked at it last week. God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God ordered us to preach to the people, verse 42, and testify this is the one 
who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Wait a second. He says everyone who does what is right is welcome to him. And then he says everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So clearly there are people, in fact everyone in the whole world, who do not really fear God and do not really do what is right, which is why we need Jesus to give us that forgiveness of sins. Which is essentially what he is saying in verse 14. When he says, you will be saved, what do we mean by you will be saved? We mean what Peter explained in Acts chapter 10, which is, if you followed God, God would welcome you. And there's a tentative sense in which God welcomed Cornelius because of his piety, despite the fact that it was not sufficient to save him. And so certainly we don't want to minimize that. But in terms of Cornelius being right in God's sight and having a lasting relationship with God and spending eternity in God's presence and all of those sorts of things, he needed to hear the message not just generally about believing in God, but he needed to hear the message about Jesus Christ specifically. And so when we use a phrase like verse 14, you will be saved, and when we recognize the first part of that, verse 14, he will speak words to you, what do we see here? We see the gospel message involves a verbal proclamation of the need the thing that God has provided to meet that need and calls to a response. He will speak words to you. There's a message that has to be proclaimed. What is that message? Is it my words? Is it your words? No, it's God's words. And God's words are the truth about Jesus. Uh, Acts 10.42 Jesus is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43 Jesus is the one prophesied by the Old Testament. Jesus is the one whose name must be believed in. Jesus is the one that when you do believe, you receive forgiveness of sins. That was the message that Peter brought to Cornelius and his household. That was the message by which they would be saved, not from a mediocre life to a living their best life now, not from uh, things aren't going the greatest, they could be better, but from being condemned to death to having the promise of life, from being God's enemies to being part of God's family, from being excluded from God to being accepted by God, not on the basis of God just sort of sweeping under the rug all the bad things they had done, God just sort of ignoring all of that, but God actually and really dealing with their problem of sin. And so Peter takes the opportunity, I think, here to remind these who are uh, addressing him and remind them of the fact that hopefully they believe the same message themselves. And now he moves from the parallel between his vision and Cornelius' vision and this question of, of uh, are they part to now here in verses 15 to 16, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
Peter says they've they've received the Spirit just like you did. And so he says, you're thinking in categories of Jew versus Gentile. And what I want you to do is think in this category, who has and who has not received the Spirit of God? Because that's what really matters with what God is doing in the church. It's not, as Paul will later make the point, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're of this nation or that nation, the question is not any of those things that divide human society and cause us to be split apart and form these little factions and be at odds with one another. The thing that matters in the church for purposes of your standing before God is do you have God's Spirit or don't you? Clearly that comes through believing the gospel, but at least in these pivotal moments of the building of the early church, it was accompanied by outward signs to show that, yes, this was in fact God's work among them. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, the Holy Spirit pours out His presence on the people of God who have come to believe the message about Jesus with the result that it was clear that this was God's work. In Acts 2, it was the sound of the rushing wind and the vision of the the flames of fire and the speaking in tongues. Acts 8, it's not as clearly outlined, but clearly I believe that there are similar parallels to what happens in Acts 2 because of Simon's request to say, hey, I want this so that I can cause this to happen on people as well. And here we see specifically the evidence of speaking in tongues, Acts 10 and verse 46, as a sign that the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So Peter starts out by saying, do they have a right to be in? Do I have a right to eat with them? The answer is, God has come upon them too. How do we know? Because the same thing that happened to us has happened to them as well. And that's the thing that you should be concerned about. Not whether they're Gentiles, not whether you're Jews, but whether both of you have the Spirit. Furthermore, he connects it back with the words of Jesus. Verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this has a lot of significance because for the Jewish people, these outward rituals and signs had huge significance. There were ceremonial washings and cleansings and rites of purification. And so they might have thought that, you know, that's important. Or they might have even thought, you know, maybe some of us were baptized by John the Baptist. And so that's something that we can hang on to and point to and say, we really deserve God's presence. And Peter is reminding them the issue is not that. The issue is what that was supposed to point to, which is that Jesus will send his Holy Spirit on those who are following after him, and that is the thing that you should be concerned about. If you have a Jewish background, great. If you were baptized by John the Baptist, great. But like Paul would later warn the Corinthian church, don't boast because this guy baptized you, or that guy baptized you, or you heard the gospel from this famous preacher, or that famous preacher. The issue is, do you know Christ, and have you experienced his presence through the Holy Spirit? Because that's what really matters in this context. And then Peter brings it to a conclusion in verse 17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Luke just brings up these themes again and again. 
belief, and then there are signs of belief. Externally, because the Spirit is poured out. Internally, because of how people act and respond. Not only that, but also this question of what is the response going to be of the people who, who hear it? So Peter's sort of throwing their question back to them. They're saying, why did you do this? And Peter's now saying, are you going to accept God's work? Because that's the question. Who was I that I could stand in God's way with the implied question being, and who are you to stand in God's way? And this is really fascinating because Luke is bringing out again this idea that we saw um, with the opposition of the people, uh, specifically of the, the Sanhedrin, to the work that God was doing. And uh, specifically, Acts 5 and verse 39, Gamaliel said, If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Paul will describe his own experience prior to conversion as fighting against God. Gamaliel warned the Pharisees and the Sadducees about fighting against God. And Peter says, who am I to be fighting against God? And so we see these themes just keep coming up in the book of Acts. So what's the response of the Jews here? We see two primary responses of the Jews. Those who accept the message and those who are constantly trying to kill Stephen and Peter and Paul and everybody else connected with the church. Well, unfortunately, we see that second response most of the rest of the book of Acts. But in this moment, it is encouraging to see, because I believe these are Jewish believers who are genuinely trying to wrestle with this question of how do the Gentiles fit into God's plan? What's their response? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Why do I draw a distinction between them and what we'll see of the Jews in the rest of the book of Acts? Because I think when Paul comes to Galatians and has such harsh words for those of the circumcision party, I don't think he's talking about these people. Why? Because these people heard God's word, saw God's work, and accepted what God was doing among the Gentiles. And I think they are those who, in connection with the Jerusalem Council, also in Acts 15, come to the conclusion that we are not going to require the Mosaic Law of the Gentiles because God hasn't required it of them. He has accepted them apart from that. But here's some ground rules to create unity in the churches. So that problem seems to have been dealt with largely. Later on, there's going to be other groups coming from outside the church or those who have not had this response of verse 18 who are going to stir up trouble in the early church and create division and act as false teachers. But that's yet to come in the book of Acts. Here we see a response that says, they quieted down. So there's this clamoring, this noise, Peter, what are you doing? Why did you do this? How could you join with these people in this way? Peter outlines what God has done and they say, okay. It's interesting to me that it has quieted down and glorified God in, in almost the same breath because we don't necessarily associate those two things as, as being together. But the one is dealing with their response, their somewhat uh, sinful or questioning response to what God was doing. And the other has to do with evidence of their having changed what they were thinking about that situation. So with regards to their attitude at first... They say they quieted down, they recognized that wasn't the right attitude to have. 
with regards to what God has actually done, that they've seen evidence that this has taken place, they glorify God. What was the basis of their glorifying God? God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is why it's important for us to see how these passages fit together. And there's a time and a place for looking at one specific verse of Scripture by itself. But there is also an important lesson to be learned from looking at this passage as a whole, which is that if we take a phrase like, be saved, and use it off in isolation by itself without connecting it with who Jesus is, the one who is appointed by God as judge of the living and dead, the prophets bear him witness, belief on through his name brings forgiveness of sins, and here that there is repentance that leads to life. If we say be saved, disconnected from all these other things in the context here, be saved becomes sort of a fuzzy sort of idea that is not necessarily clear to the people that we are explaining it to, and sometimes is not even clear in our own minds. And so is it wrong to speak of being saved? No. As long as you recognize that being saved means that you have the repentance that leads to life, that it's on the basis of believing in the one who is the judge of the living and the dead, who has fulfilled prophecy, and that you recognize that that belief results in forgiveness from sins. So being saved is not, life will be better if I pray a quick prayer and then go on doing everything that I've already done. Being saved is repentance that leads to life. What's repentance? Turning away from something that displeases God and turning to something that pleases God. Why is it contrasted as repentance that leads to life? Because what's over here? Death. And so it's very important that when we present the gospel message, if we use this language of being saved, it's biblical language. But we've got to use it in connection with all of these other important gospel truths that clarify what is involved so that we make sure that the gospel is clear to the people that we are speaking to. So we look at a passage like this and we say, what does this have to do with us? We're not looking for an outward manifestation of the Spirit descending on us in tongues as a new phase of the church expands to a new people group here in Royal Oak, right? I mean, I assume that we're not looking for that. I don't think we have biblical warrant to look for that. What, in, what then are we supposed to do with a passage like this? I think the key question for the Jews of Jerusalem was to say, do I evaluate people on the basis of human categories, or do I evaluate people on the basis of God's criteria for being a part of the church? And so when you look at a neighbor, family member, coworker, someone like that, do you look at that person and say that this person is tall or short, this person is rich or poor, this person is Irish or African American or uh, from the Middle East or wherever, do you look at all of those sorts of criteria and say, these are the things that are important to me, these are the boxes that I put people in, or do you recognize there's really only two boxes that matter, and those are, do you have God's Spirit and know Christ, or do you not? 
And if they're in the box of, we don't know Christ, what are you doing by God's grace to help them know Christ? And if they're in the box of that they do know Christ, all these other things don't matter as far as they're standing before God. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about all of the things that cause us to, to put people in little boxes and say, I won't have anything to do with that person or that person or that person because they're different from me in this way. If they are in Christ, that person is a brother or sister in Christ. If they are not in Christ, they need him. And you have this question. Do you see that this is God's work? And do you see that from this example, you're not the only one who's going to be doing God's work if you approach life in this way? Do you have the response that these people had in verse 18? Do you quiet the objections of your soul to what I have just said, and do you glorify God as he works in all sorts of people? People who look like us, people who don't look like us, people who talk like us, people who don't talk like us, people who have the same sort of lifestyle as us in terms of comfort, or people who don't. Do you glorify God for his work in all sorts of people? I'm not saying that our church has to be uh, meet a specific quota of this many people of this particular background or ethnic group or whatever else, because honestly, the whole point of this passage is that those things aren't the thing to focus on. And yet, if we are not looking to reach those in our community around us, if we are content to just say, I don't want to associate with them because of some objection that falls in the same sort of category, which is why the Jews didn't want to associate with the Gentiles, I'm not saying sin is okay. I'm not saying be foolish in the way that you present the gospel. But do you care about seeing all sorts of people such that when it says in Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation come and glorify God, that we've had an opportunity to participate in that sort of work right here where we are. And so at first glance, this passage seems like it has nothing to do with us, because it's about Jews and Gentiles, and that's not a thing for most of us today. And yet, really, it's about God working in all sorts of people, and the gospel being for all sorts of people, and us evaluating our hearts, because there's so many obstacles that we can set up to giving the gospel to someone, and we need to deal with that and give people the truth, and once they've accepted the truth, that we accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we walk by people, drive by people, encounter people every day and we immediately start making judgments in our hearts and minds about those people about their fitness or lack of it for being a part of your kingdom and work and yet that is a dangerous and a sinful attitude to have we do not know who it is you have purposed to save you have called us to faithfully take your truth 
And that's going to mean that we will be uncomfortable and misunderstood and uh, have to work through things that are obstacles in our own hearts and minds, but we have to recognize that your work is more important than our comfort, our reputation in terms of whether everybody thinks well of us, our preferences in terms of what makes us feel um, most at home. Lord Paul was willing to, to shave his head and fulfill a vow and, and uh, purify himself at the temple and all those sorts of things because he knew that if he didn't, he wouldn't have the opportunity to go into the synagogues and preach to the Jews. And so he did those things being a Jew himself. But he was also willing to go and spend time with Gentiles, just like Peter is doing here. And that was not well received by those who had wrong criteria in their minds for what matters in your sight. Lord, I don't think that we should go out and be something that we're not, try to be Jews when we're not, try to uh, be whatever group that we're not already a part of. And yet at the same time, we ought to realize that those groups are not the main thing the gospel and the work that it does in transforming us and taking a bunch of different people with a bunch of different backgrounds with a lot of differences into one body so that together we can glorify you and people will see that this is not our work but yours. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that because there is much in our hearts and our minds that creates obstacles and and interferes with us doing that well. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to repent of those things and to faithfully do what you've called us to do. Lord, as people come into our church body, hopefully next church gathering, hopefully next Sunday, and see our assembling together, Lord, I pray that the thing that they will remember is not the clothes that we wear, the Christian language that we use in terms of just the, the, the typical jargon that we like to use sometimes, but they wouldn't remember what we're against, but they will remember what we're for. That They will remember that we show love to them, that we are concerned about their souls, that we are concerned about Christ, because he's the thing that's most important, not all of these other things. Lord, we pray that we would have that attitude not just this next Sunday, not just during this week, but throughout our lives because that's the sort of attitude that I think you call us to have based on this passage. We pray that you would go with us from this place. We pray that you would be honored as we gather perhaps with other assemblies tonight and that you would be pleased in all these things in Christ's name. Amen.